Local and Rebel Capitals, hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Patrick Serezna. We're going to do a deep dive on how to invest for a recession. Maybe more specifically, how to invest if you think the stock market is going to have some big troubles going through the rest of 2023 and into 2024. We're going to use some options, but we're going to go over some macro stuff first. So, Patrick Serezna, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks for coming on. Oh, George, it's always a pleasure. Love to join you. Uh, thank you for having me, bud. All right. So let's just dive right into the slides, man. What do we got here? I'll I know the first. jobs numbers just came out and they're just ripping to the upside. Well, I'm going to do a video. I'd love to get your take on that. Well, we'll talk about the ADP, but the jobs numbers still come out tomorrow from an unemployment perspective. But uh, I'll, we'll get to the jobs chart in a second. What I want to highlight, the impact of that jobs number, which is, is that uh, we now have a Fed funds rate that is uh, just over 5%. And uh, we just now for the July 26th meeting, uh, uh, the CME future, fund, Fed fund futures are now pricing in a 92% chance that the Fed is going to uh, raise interest rates, another really? five basis points. Uh, and uh, wow. and so the rate hike cycle uh, is um, back. Like this idea that they're pausing and or they'll, they'll be easing is is uh, not here yet. And so we have this backdrop where uh, we still have the, uh, the macro tightening. And this is happening where there are certain cracks in the armor. Uh, so this is uh, Jerome Blockland uh, on Twitter posted this. And I thought it was a really interesting chart, which was just showing that the filings for bankruptcies are rising. Uh, but the interesting part is uh, uh, junk bond credit spreads mm -hmm. are failing to move. Uh, Why is that? So, uh, you got well, the federal bailout? That's the great question. Like really what we have is a market. Well, there, there tends to be a, a correlation with junk bonds to the equity markets. And so the fact that the stock markets have been doing so well has probably been a huge tailwind. But the thing is, is that uh, very typical going into a recession, you have... Uh, the, the, you know, you raise interest rates, you make the lowest quality companies uh, uh, have to pay the most interest, yet they have the worst balance sheets, the worst, uh, uh, and probably sometimes the most cyclical businesses, the most vulnerable and most likely to default. And, and yet we have no uh, canary in the coal wine breaking of uh, credit spreads blowing out. And this is interesting because it really goes to this uh, kind of... Uh, signal to the market that basically everything is okay. Everything's fine. Nothing to worry about. You know, at the, and it's what we went from hard landing to soft landing to no landing, right? Like yeah. right now, everyone is so sure that we're going to be able to get out of this unscathed. Um, and so what I wanted to highlight was this jobs number. Then we obviously are going to get the number tomorrow, but the ADP numbers were the, the story today. And uh, the, so far, the jobs numbers have been resilient and everybody's saying, Oh, the consumer is strong. Uh, the the jobs market is solid. It's a sign that the, that the, we're going to be able to power through this rate hike. I and uh, I just uh, kind of reflect and think about it and say, well, are you so sure? Uh, because like when we look back, at, and this is the um, uh, unemployment rate back in two thousand and two to two thousand and ten, going into the great financial crisis. And what I highlighted in red there was the rate, the period where uh, Greenspan and Ben Bernanke 
were raising interest rates. So between uh, mid-2004 to mid-2006, first uh, Greenspan, and then eventually when Bernanke took over, they raised interest rates, you know, 4% or so uh, on the upside, uh, triggering what was ultimately a subprime mortgage crisis, all sorts of different elements that that, uh, um, uh, obviously broke. But it was in January 2007 that we saw uh, the first subprime crisis start uh, events start happening. Right, so they created some mergers. So some of the uh, the mortgage banks had to be taken over, and then it was in the summer of 2007 where we had subprime blowing up, uh, and uh, that was when the um, Bear Stearns had two of their credit hedge funds blow up. Oh, that was and- from- you mean summer of 2008. No, 2007. Oh, it was 2007 that that we had that event. The stock market dropped about 12% in the summer of 2007. And everyone was so sure that that was the beginning of the sell-off. And yet the stock market rallied to an all-time new high in uh, October of 2007, in spite of all the subprime problems already. And the the unemployment rate continued to go down based on- Or stayed flat. Mm, The point is- when did the spike above 5% happen? It was like in the uh, beginning of the second quarter of 2008, after bank stocks were already 50% off their highs, the stock market was already 20% off of its highs deep in the bear market. And only then did the jobs numbers start to break. The point, and, and more importantly, the recession, looking in hindsight, was already four months old by the time the jobs numbers started to arise. The point here is everyone staring at these jobs numbers like, oh, look, everything is great. And I'm just saying, well, you know what? Maybe the jobs numbers are just a lagging indicator and they're and they're not going to signal until we're already deep into the recession. Yeah. And isn't it bizarre as well that the Fed is hanging their hat on the unemployment rate? Like we have to to defeat or we have to get the unemployment rate up in order to to defeat inflation. But yet the unemployment rate has gone down to uh, a a historic low going back to the 1960s, while the inflation rate has gone from 9% all the way down to 4%. So how is it that the only way to beat inflation is high unemployment when we've had low unemployment, yet we've seen a 500 basis point drop? (laughs) That makes no sense to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's um, you know it it is something that is always one of those things that makes you go hmm. But uh, the one thing though I would just leave it is is that uh, you can't raise interest rates five percent in like eighteen months on ninety trillion dollars of U.S. credit stock. More importantly, raise interest rates globally. Almost every major G20 country went through some sort of rate hike cycle. And uh, the total global credit stock is well over $300 trillion. The fact is, is, is that there is massive stresses on the credit system, certainly on the banking systems uh, in terms of defaults and all sorts of different things that start to emerge. And the fact that it hasn't broken yet is somehow looked at as a positive. But the fact is, is that the risks still can emerge. It's just, it might uh, surprise everyone just how uh, um, on the very short term, the market is resilient, but that doesn't make it that the market is out of the woods. We have to stop and reflect on there's, I like to look at at the monetary uh, clock season, uh, seasonality, which is you go from uh, a monetary 
uh, easing cycle to strong macro conditions. Then you have a monetary tightening cycle that leads to um, uh, in in a, a strong macro condition. Then you have monetary tightening into weak macro, and then monetary uh, um, uh, hiking or or easing into weak macro. And it's like a, a clock that goes in there. We're in the cycle where the Fed is raising interest rates and tightening credit conditions into uh, economic data that has not yet cracked. Um, and I, I don't want to call it strong data, but it hasn't really weakened yet. And so we haven't, uh, and the, you can't change where we are in that cycle. The fact is the Fed is not going to ease the, and take the foot off of the brake until the economy needs a new injection of, uh, of liquidity. And therefore, they're going to keep things tight until they squeeze the whole system into something breaking. It's a long, rich history of that. And uh, you know, David Rosenberg and others kind of highlight this cycle. And I don't see any playing out any other way. There's no reason why the Fed is going to just randomly start easing now, saying, oh, we had enough. We're just going to start giving everyone a break. Yeah, that's it's. They're only going to react once they have to, and uh, and that brings us to the the interesting chart. Yeah, but every single time they pause, the next step is they have to. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the the next step is never that they raise rates. The next step is that the stuff hits the fan, which is the catalyst to them yeah. lowering rates and dropping it. And that's what uh, steepens out the yield curve. Exactly. And so uh, we. This is the twos tens. I know you love watching this one, uh, but it, it's amazing. It's still stuck down uh, at uh, a minus one percent on the two ten yeah. yield curve. And um, and what what it really comes down to is just exactly like what we saw happen today, uh, or even uh, all week, or or even last week. We suddenly have um, a scenario where short-term interest rates are once again ripping higher and long-term interest rates are a little more sticky. And this is causing deeper inversions as the, uh, as those, uh, you know, I mean, uh, what the two-year yield is well over 5% now. Uh, you know, like uh, the one-year yield is pressing up there. Uh, you, you have a scenario where they are paying a, a substantial premium over going out to the 10-year duration. Uh, so what ultimately creates the bull steepening? And the bull steepening is when the Fed has to start cutting. This is when the market will start to price uh, short-term money. Uh, uh, they'll start forward pricing in um, rate cuts. And they're going to start making uh, short-term money cheap again because they're anticipating that the Fed has started a brand new easing cycle. But what is uh, uh, just amazing to me is here I have the three-month uh, SOFR futures going out to December 2024. We were, this is going 18 months out. The the uh, SOFR futures were showing, they were anticipating 2.5% interest rates back in May. In other words, they were anticipating the Fed would have to already by uh, the end of next year be already 2 2.5% into rate cuts. And right. this has collapsed in the last two months. We have literally seen uh, us now get to uh, uh, four and a quarter percent interest rates going out to the end of the year of next year, which basically is now saying is that they were before talking about the Fed all next year having to be in this deep cutting cycle to now 
at best, they'll be cutting a 1% uh, by the end of next year. Uh, it's line going down, This these SOFR futures. That implies... Okay, so uh, so what you do is... What you do is you minus the number from 100 to tell you what interest rate it's at. So it, when it's at 97 and a half, 100 minus 97 and a half is a two and a half percent interest rate. And so uh, when uh, this is now at 95.75, um, rounding obviously for math, then that um, uh, that is implying a four and a quarter percent interest rate. Oh, I see. So so we went from uh, SOFR futures two months ago saying that the Fed was going to be in deep, by by the end of next year, they were going to be in a deep rate cut cycle because we would have been in a recession and everything's thing. Suddenly, uh, soft landing, no landing. Come on, the Fed's not going to have to do anything. And they literally pulled 2% out of the um, uh, uh, forward interest rate forecasts in just two months. And this really is a reflection of suddenly how the sentiment shifted what um, what is interesting is recall two, uh, three, four months ago when I was on your show, uh, we were talking about how to short the market. And I was uh, a little hesitant to say it was a little early. And one of the reasons I felt it was early because it was such consensus to be short back then. Everyone right. was so sure that the regional bank crisis was going to uh, fuck the system and, um, and that uh, everything had to be shorted. And the sentiment was so negative. Like, look at that chart at the bottom where the sentiment was back in March. We were under 25%, basically in extreme fear territory. Uh, and yet we have now gone to a point where we've reached extreme greed to the point that we actually haven't in uh, all of this year and all of last year been at such an extreme reading. Uh, it, um, and so we literally, in just the three months between the last time I was on uh, on here with you, went from everyone scared shitless to now everyone is so confident. And uh, the one thing I'll tell you is this, George, the stock market never crashes when everyone expects it to. And uh, the, the, the whole point of a stock market crash or a liquidity event is everyone's on the wrong side of the market and then they get shocked. And then everyone tries to run for the exit door at the same time, and it creates those liquidity air pockets that creates the huge, massive drawdown cycle. So you right. actually need uh, everyone to be wrong. <laughs> and and so the thing is, is that when the stock market back in March and April was so, um, the sentiment was so negative, it's just the market wasn't going to crash when everyone was already planning for it. Mm -hmm. So now we have, though, the exact opposite. Now everyone is like, look, the employment is strong. The consumer is strong. Everything's great. Let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, right? Like we're going to, uh, everyone is, is, uh, is doing great. And this now creates the conditions, in my opinion, where the market is going to increasingly be vulnerable. And an example of some of the flows things, this is a Charlie McElligot uh, chart, um, which basically shows CTA positioning in equities. We are now approaching decade-high positioning. CTAs are trend followers. They simply have to be in the market when the market is trending. There's, there's, this is um, not, there's no discretion in this. This is basically- uh, What does CTA system, stand for? Uh, commodity trading, uh, um, uh, oh my God, Socia, whatever it is. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's the guys that basically 
um, uh, do our license in the futures market to do trend following and technical with commodities with commodities and indices and futures and everything like okay. that. Okay, got it. And so when they get the signals to go long, they're forced to buy. Now, first of all, they've looked like rock stars all year because when uh, the uh, buy signals came in, uh, starting in in the um, uh, third fourth quarters of last year, uh, they were being forced to go long. And all of us that were a little more bearish uh, were like, I don't know, probably uh, still probably a bear market. And yet the CTAs just systematically bought and were long. So they've actually been uh, honestly rock stars up until now. But it, but what I want to highlight here is they're now at extreme positioning. Everyone uh, in the entire systematic space, it, whether it's um, a long, uh, like the of all targeting funds, whether it's risk parity funds, whether it's um, uh, the CTAs, uh, um, uh, all of these uh, um, trading uh, quant kind of people that are uh, basically managing money this way are all being forced to be net long this market. And everybody is fomoing their ass back into this market because of all the money being made and they're missing out. And finally, in my opinion, this is the conditions that actually allow for the first time there to be real risk. And everyone thinks it's all going to be about the jobs numbers, but I, 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 I'll see. We'll see. Maybe it's the maybe it's the earnings. Maybe it's something that's said at Jackson Hole later in the summer. Uh, I'm not certain of what the ultimate uh, catalyst will be, but uh, but something here inevitably will uh, change the animal spirits and everyone will realize that, well, shit, uh, things can still get pretty ugly. And when that happens, then we have um, a potential for uh, a real extreme move. So really, George, what I want to do is spend some time with you just talking about a, the option strategy we talked about last time and how it played out. And but two, what are the perfect conditions today for considering how to either hedge existing positions that you have to protect yourself or two, um, how to, if you're bearish, position yourself to potentially profit from a violent downturn that may emerge uh, not maybe next month, but maybe three months down. Who knows how long it takes for the actual point to start? But how can you position yourself with options to uh, um, to take advantage of that potential volatility? So let's get into it, right? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I always say to keep it super simple, Patrick. I always say you got two options. You believe the unemployment rate or you believe the yield curve. It's up to you. <laughs> Which I'd like is more accurate. <laughs> Well, uh, you know what? I just think that the unemployment rate could be a huge lag. Yeah, and I think that-, that, that, uh, that That's that, my point. That, the unemployment that, rate is always wrong. The yield curve is always right. So why would it be any different this time? Yeah, but it, ultimately something's got to break. I, I, Mike, honestly, a big picture trading, my, my big canary in the coal mine is when the credit spreads break. Uh, I think that um, uh, when we see high yield have to- uh, suddenly pay tra uh, trade a considerable premium over treasury because default rates are rising and other stresses in the high yield junk bond market start cracking. I think that that's, uh, to me, a true canary in the coal mine for when things are really starting. Right. But in order to figure that out, you'd need to know why there's such a dramatic spread right now or between the, the bankruptcies and the, and the spreads themselves, right? 
I mean, I think it just goes, everyone just assumes the Fed, if they do blow out, the Fed will come in and buy the, the junk debt like they did in 2020. Or maybe because the stock market's so high, there is it because their equity goes up, Patrick? So because their equity is going up, maybe that's uh, that the Absolutely. market sees that like, as a potential bailout to where the, you know, they could afford the higher interest rates. I, I the the correlation between uh, junk bonds and equities uh, has often through history been as much as eighty percent, and so when the stock market is doing well and equities are going up, it uh, alleviates stress on uh, on that. But that's the whole point: is that once the stock market runs out of, I the way I'd like to kind of describe the stock market uh, and the reflexivity of what I think is the volatility ahead of us is is that. Um, imagine a rocket shooting up uh, uh, off the ground, just like a, not, not a rocket ship, but like just like a, a rocket filled with some gunpowder or whatever, and it just shoots up into the sky. Uh, the more uh, fuel you put into this little rocket, the higher it goes, but inevitably it runs out of fuel and gravity kicks in and ultimately drags it back down to earth. And the more fuel you put into the rocket, the higher it can go but the higher is off the ground and therefore has that much more to fall. And so if the stock market decline started off at 4,000 three months ago, I think the decline could have been much more shallow and much smaller. But if we, let's say in the next two months, see the S&P go and retest its all-time high near 4,700, then the next drop in the market is going to be 1,000 to 1,500 points, right? The point is, is that like uh, the higher it goes reflexively, uh, it's going to be that much more of a violent drop. Uh, and, um, and I think that that's a, just an important consideration when building a strategy on how to kind of navigate these uh, waters. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Well so, said, all right, let's get into it, man. All right, so I wanted to first just get an update to everyone about the calendar straddle. So when I was on with you, uh, three months ago, one of the things we talked about is this idea of buying a longer dated put option and buying a shorter dated call option at the same strike, with uh, which has more gamma. And the idea behind it was um, if we were early to the stock market and the stock market rallied, the money that we're making on the call option because of the higher gamma often was able to offset the loss on the put allowing us to continuously reposition the trade higher. And since I spent the time talking about it, uh, I figured that I'd update everyone on how the strategy is done. And what I want to show is that we're now on our sixth roll of the, um, uh, of the uh, straddle. 
And what's amazing is we started the straddle below 400 on the SPY, below 4,000 on the S&P. We were literally 500 points early on a short, right? Like uh, the market's just been ripping higher since. But three of the rolls were actually able to successfully have been done in a profit. And net, we're only down six buy points, largely from just the theta burn carry of, of being long uh, options. But the fact is, is we are now short put options out uh, three months out uh, at the 442 level on the SPY. We literally have put options now at the highs of the market. And we, even though we were spectacularly early on a call on the turn of the market, we have been able to actually position ourselves and pretty much uh, walk away unscathed, uh, just simply rolling the straddle yet at some point, we're so well positioned that when this market inevitably breaks, we have all of these put options ready to, uh, to monetize on the downside. And so anyway, what I wanted to Basically, know- what you're doing there is you're, you're buying a call and so you're getting paid uh, while you wait for the, the put to be in the money to where you can sell that at a profit. Now, yeah. sometimes you're not gonna make uh, enough, you know, it's not gonna be a net wash, but at least you're, with that call option, you're not losing as much you would if you just had like a a, a naked put for lack of well so the uh if you're just long a put option the beautiful part about the call though by being shorter dated in duration uh it uh actually appreciates at a faster rate than the put option is decaying in value and so so long as the market advance is done uh with um with enough velocity uh, then uh, you're uh, actually walking away having made money uh, on the rules. But okay. uh, so I would- A good way to hedge that put position. Exactly. So what I want to encourage um, anyone that wants to review what the strategy was is to go back to the um, uh, last time I was on your show and just watch it because we explained it together how this strategy works and you could just go back and watch the previous episode. But what I wanted to talk about is today's options market, because I think there's some incredibly unique things that I think uh, people should have brought to their attention. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I want to highlight is how low volatility is. And it's interesting because when I talked to you yesterday, volatility was literally at uh, almost three year lows. Uh, on the VIX. this means the options are going to be cheap. Yes, right? which basically means that the expected standard deviation is more narrow, and therefore the premium is cheaper. And the point is, this is a one-month option. But what is actually um, uh, really interesting is when you look at a six-month volatility, we you have to go all the way back to 2019 to find a period where volatility was lower. At the same time, one year out volatility premiums, while they're not um, back down to 2019 or 2018 levels, we are literally just a few percentage points away from where some of the lowest volatility levels that we have seen uh, um, uh, even for a decade. Uh, and so you have a scenario where uh, option volatility is very low making options actually very cheap. Right. Um, and uh, so I asked the question, uh, so I asked the question, what strategy is an effective hedge or a way of carrying uh, uh, a position to profit from a potential downside move that uh, is, uh, is ideal to put on 
when you have very low vol conditions, where the primary trend is still very bullish, and you anticipate significant volatility. Now, volatility can be up and down, but it's but you're expecting big volatility to emerge, right? And uh, and I think that these conditions exist today. The stock market is in a bull market, like in trend anyway. And uh, even though I think it's ridiculous that the stock market's at this level, uh, would I be would I fall out of my chair in shock if the stock market went and retested forty seven hundred on the upside? Well, I, I I wouldn't. I'd be a little bit skeptical, but I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, so there's a primary bull trend that this market can still actually on the short term will keep rising, yet volatility is incredibly low. And when shit hits the fan, we now have an environment where the market can really drop and rip on the downside if it turns, if it turns. And that's the key element there. And so the strategy that I wanted to introduce to um, your listeners is this ratio put backspread. And I'm going to explain it in detail what this is. Uh, you have a bias of a big directional move lower. Uh, you're selling a big premium to buy a larger amount of out-of-the-money cheap options. And this could be done either at a debit or a credit, but usually, and then the example I'm going to give, it's done at a zero cost. So what this involves is the selling of an at-the-money put option. We'll do in a real example here, George. We sell a put and then buy two farther out-of-the-money puts. The key here is there at the same expiration and on the same underlying security. So as an example here, we have a $100 stock. And let's say we go five months out and the at the money $100 strike put is $6. Okay. So uh, we sell the put. If it didn't have the other options, it would be naked. We're selling a naked put. We're collecting a credit and income to be short the option. Uh, but when we receive the $6 in income and cash flow, we proceed to buy twice as many of the $95 strike puts, which are each $3. So uh, we received a $6 income, but we paid a $6 debit for those out, out of the money puts. And therefore, it actually was a zero cost to us. So literally, the uh, the spread is at zero. Now it doesn't; it's at zero cost from a debit perspective, but the brokerage will require the five dollars spread between a uh, hundred and ninety-five dollars to be put up as margin. So you do need to provide collateral of five dollars to open this trade, but the trade is open at a zero cost. What this does is it creates this amazing profile right here which is a notice that what happens when the stock is at $100 and or keeps going higher? Nothing. In other words, if the stock market keeps rallying, then the entire spread just expires worthless and you lose nothing because you paid nothing for it. it so goes above 100. And if anybody, but it is at 100. So if it stays the same or goes anywhere higher. Oh, right, right. Got it. Right. We opened it at the $100 price at the $100 okay. strike short. And so anywhere, if it goes to 105, 110, 115, 120, doesn't matter. The, uh, the spread expires at zero. And so the, think of the environment today. 
we keep saying, oh man, the stock market's got to crash at some point, but yet um, the stock market keeps going higher. So what's a, a great way to, to kind of hedge against that? Well, with this strategy, if the market just keeps going higher, you're going to lose nothing. Now, where is the risk? The risk is like a 5% market correction and it stays down there. So mm -hmm. the, the, you, your risk point becomes down at $95. But what was the one criteria that I said earlier that we expect big volatility? We expect that when the market finally turns, it's going to really crack on the downside. And it's not going to be a 5% correction. It's going to be a 10 to 20 or 30% drop in the market. It's not a 5% drop. And so uh, then suddenly what happens, because you own more put options than you're short, suddenly you're making a shitload of money on a market crash. Right. So... That what this does is but you're losing it, no money on a market boom. You're basically losing no money on a market boom. And the higher it goes, all you need to do is keep closing it and open at a higher level. Close it. Keep uh, open at a higher level. Close it. Open at a higher level. You keep trailing the market, losing nothing. Yeah. And then ultimately, uh, when the market breaks, you then are expecting this violent move. It's not a riskless trade. Obviously, the market can go down just a little bit and stay there. But in my opinion, today's market environment, that is the least of the likely scenarios. I think right. market ripping to up 300 points or the market dropping 500 points is a far greater probability than the S&P dropping 100 points and sitting there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Josh, make sure you write this down. We're going to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got a model portfolio in, in Robo Capitalist Pro. And by the way, Patrick's uh, one of the pros in Robo Capitalist Pro. But uh, yeah, we definitely need to execute this strategy for that model portfolio. But anyway. Right. Be because it just sits there and follows along. It's very cheap to carry. There's zero cost to it beyond the, uh, the collateral of the spread. And, uh, and, uh, and you want to basically trailer this behind the market. And you basically just keep adjusting it. It's basically giving you forgiveness for being early, right? Yeah, like, right, right. And and so I can't think of a more interesting market environment that then, like I showed you those volatility charts and the one six and one month, six month, and one year volatility. Like the, the what is your enemy? Enemy is volatility declining because you're long volatility. Uh, and so you basically are looking to buy it when volatility is very low, allows you to do the spread much closer, and it therefore gives you that much more of a move when things turn to the upside. So uh, that's the one strategy. The other thing I just wanted to talk about is today's option pricing dynamic. And a very few people notice this, but I wanted to ex uh, educate and explain to your uh, listeners just one really interesting observation. So here I have the S&P 500 options chain. Uh, this is the SPX index, European style options. You can see the cash settled price of the S&P at the top right corner circled in red is 4,400, right? So at the time when we were doing this, the market was more or less at 4,400. So I'm looking at the at the money $4,400 strike. But notice the closing price on the call option was $533, while the put option was $256. Wow. So the question that, that means, 
the most question that everyone asks is, why the hell are calls so expensive and why are puts so cheap? Right? Isn't it fascinating? And, um, and so I want to explain why this phenomenon exists. It's basically interest rates. So um, the, uh, options need to discount the carry cost of interest. So uh, let's talk about uh, creating synthetics or, or to uh, do differentials on, on comparing two different strategies that are synthetically the same. So, uh, so George, if we go back here, if somebody buys the S&P 500 at uh, 4,400 and proceeds to buy a protective put, right? They have a long stock market position with a put option that is removing all downside risk. Now, what if you alternatively did this? What if you alternatively put all of that money into a money market fund or T-bill earning 5% interest and then proceeded to buy a call option. If put call parity did not discount interest rates into them, then the person who buys the call option would outperform the stock market by the 5% interest rate every single time because his money's sitting in a money market fund earning 5% while getting all the upside of the stock market with the call. So the only way that that arbitrage can be removed is by discounting interest rates into option pricing models. And so what happens is, is that the call has to be more expensive and the put has to be cheaper to the point that they discount the 5% interest carry for owning the stock versus holding cash. Mm. This makes put options today, long dated put options, incredibly cheap for betting on the downside of the stock market. They're literally discounted uh, by the uh, because of the large interest rates. But right. this, uh, but there's a second benefit to it. If you're betting that inevitably the Fed will have to start cutting, and those SOFR futures are wrong, and that 2024 recession's kicking in, and they're going to be cutting two, three, four percent next year, the term uh, from an option Greek's perspective of rho, which is the impact of interest rates on options means you now not only have very low volatility, which means your long volatility and will benefit from volatility expanding on this option, but you will also, as interest rates are being cut, the option will become more expensive because interest rates are rise, uh, sorry, uh, are, are falling. Right. And so the, you basically have a one negative, which is theta, which is that the option is costing you money to carry as it's burning premium. But it's offset by any increase in volatility of historically low levels. As well, any cut in interest rates will also have this option increase in price. And so you actually have two positives against a negative on buying a very cheap option to bet on the downside of the market with long-term puts. Yeah, I, th I think I'm, I'm following that. I mean, the, the bottom line is you're getting paid 533 to buy that call or to sell the call, no. excuse me. No, to sell the call or to buy it. Let's say, let's say, um, okay, let's say you have a million dollars. Let's just kind of go through the uh, thought exercise. You have a million dollars. Now, if you buy 
call options that give you a million dollars of notional upside on the stock market, right? So in other words, call options that you don't buy the stock, you're buying call options that give you the right to buy the stock in the future, mm -hmm. that give you all of the upside north of 4,400, right? So now uh, you buy the calls. What are you going to do with that million dollars of cash? You're going to buy a treasury, a 5%. Right. How much over the course of a year are you going to earn on a million dollars? $50,000. Right. Right? So you're going to earn $50,000 of interest. Now, if someone alternatively uh, buys the stock market and puts the million dollars into the actual S&P 500, Right, literally physically buys the stocks of the S&P 500 and invests the million dollars into stocks. Then proceeds to buy protective puts to remove all downside risk of the stock market. Over the course of the year, if the call and the put were equal, then you, the first strategy that kept the cash in money market, would beat the other one by $50,000 because you earn $50,000 interest. Right, 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 right. So the only way the options market can adjust for that arbitrage, or maybe better said, compete with that arbitrage. Yeah, well, to, you know, what it's what it's trying right? to compete. Well, compete. What it's trying to do is remove uh, any uh, ability for a hedge fund to come in there and sell one side of it, buy the other, and make free money. What they have to do through arbitrage is to basically right price the options to remove any to make the two. Uh, strategies completely uh, equal, mm, that, that, that there's no advantage of going one way or versus the other. And this has forced put options to be seriously cheaper than calls. And this, for anyone who is bearish, this is a 18-month um, put option betting on the downside of the stock market, and it's only 250 S&P points. You basically can have a short position going out to the end of next year and the 250 S&P points the market went up just in the last month is all it costs you to carry a put option that long. Right? It's uh, it's just an interesting dynamic about today's option pricing. I just wanted to bring it to your members' attention on that. But, uh, you know, George, uh, I just wanted to, um, uh, I know you uh, want to talk about the rebel capitalists. I just wanted to highlight that uh, I'm going to be doing on Tuesday uh, a webinar explaining these strategies in great detail. And, you know, you're obviously, you or Josh are welcome to join me for that one. And if you guys want to go through it, but I'm going to be explaining in great detail um, uh, what are the dynamics behind these ratio uh, back spreads and what are some of the ways to take advantage of the interest rate disparity on buying these long dated put options. So I'm going to have a great webinar covering this in great detail. How do people sign up for it, Patrick? Well, uh, uh, hopefully, uh, we can put the link into the uh, into the message uh, at the bottom of the chat, uh, chat. That real quick. It's just bigpicturetrading.com forward slash money, right? Forward slash money, exactly. So bigpicturetrading.com forward slash money. And, uh, you know, George, uh, hopefully you join me. If you do, we can uh, chat about it. But the, well, I'm going to go into detail to explain some of the dynamics of managing one of these ratio back spreads, when to close it, when to roll it, how to manage your way through it. And also go into greater detail about when and how to consider using these long-dated uh, put options and, and how to manage them in these kind of market conditions. So I'm going to have a great webinar on that. Uh, and so uh, anyone that wants to join, 
please uh, join me next week on Tuesday. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, I would love to be there, Patrick. <laughs> love it, Josh. Oh, please come on, but uh, we we I can uh, I'll I'll turn you go I'll make you go live, Mike, so you can uh, you can uh, join me in a chat. All right, bud. Oh, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll let you guys set that up, Patrick. Thanks for coming on, buddy. I always appreciate it. Listen, uh, always a pleasure, George, and I look forward to coming on again. Thank you so much, and have a great time out there. All right, bye. All right, cheers.